Will you please pray with me as we approach God's word this morning? God, we sang these incredible words this morning. Behold, your kingdom now is come. Those words that Jesus declared. And there's something so joyful and so hopeful about declaring that, um, but we do it with just a keen awareness that there is so much of the world this week, today, that is crying out with longing for that to be true. We hold before you just all of the pain, all of the turmoil, all of the violence and the fear. We hold it before you with confidence, not only that you care, but that you have a plan already in motion to do something to transform all of it into a new world where love and peace and justice reign. Show us what it means for us to live as a part of that new world in anticipation of what you are bringing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are starting a new sermon series this morning called Divine Justice. Um, if, if 2020 and 2021 had a buzzword aside from COVID and unprecedented, um, justice would probably be it. And I, I recognize even putting this, this word and this kind of topic on the table that there are probably a variety of reactions we as a community instantly have to it. Like some of us hear this term justice and we immediately light up, and some of us hear it and we immediately get wary. I've never met anybody who is actually like anti-justice in theory. Like we generally like agree that justice is a good thing in theory, but the trouble is we have different intuitions about what justice means and how we get to it. And that's really what this series is about. Um, a few months ago, I, I finally conquered this giant tome of a book that I've been slowly making my way through for two years about economics and ancient societies. And, and one of the things I learned from the, this, this was an academic book that was kind of surveying ancient tribes from all across the world, is that one of the biggest dilemmas ancient tribes faced was how to divide the meat. So the way that most tribal societies work is that you have different people kind of playing different roles in society, and typically it's, it's the young men, right? The, the young men who can go like chase down the buffalo that you're going to send out, and they're going to go hunt down some meat, and some of them are going to be particularly gifted and talented at doing this, and they're going to work extra hard, and they're going to get more meat than everybody else. And then you have this huge dilemma as a community, like what do you do when they come back? Who owns the meat? How much meat should each person get? How do you keep these, these young bucks motivated to go out there and like get that buffalo because you need it for everybody else, but from becoming so full of themselves that they become a plague on the entire community? And there are a variety of options here, right? Like option number one is to say he hunted the meat, he killed the buffalo, it's his meat. He should get the best cut, he should decide how it's distributed to everyone else. And option number two is to say, hey, we're a community, we all have a role, he just played his role, everybody should get an equal share of the meat. Uh, but of course, then you might say in option three, but wait a minute, like the guy who spent the last 20 hours chasing down a buffalo probably needs more calories than the person who just sat next to the fire all day. 
in the family that's like raising kids and has another one on the way, maybe they need more too. So maybe it shouldn't be an equal share system. Maybe we should like divide this by family size or divide this by role. Like how do you divide the meat? Like justice, in very simple terms, justice means giving people their due. But the real question is like, what do we actually owe each other? We might want to give them their due, but what do we actually owe? Is justice treating every person the same way, or is justice treating every person uniquely? What about fairness? Like, if you are raising kids right now, like, I remember over and over, my favorite word as a kid was, like, fair. That's not fair. Kids have a deep intuition for fairness. Is fairness and justice the same thing? And what about punishment? Like, here's really opening a can of worms. Does justice or injustice require punishment? Always? Sometimes? Never? What's the relationship of justice and punishment? These are really huge questions that cultures have struggled with as long as there have been human beings and and that we've answered differently. But because we are a community of Christians, the real question for us is not how does our culture answer this question, it's how does God answer this question? Like, what does justice mean to God? Specifically to the God who has been revealed in Jesus. So that's, that's the question we're going to be unfolding over the next couple weeks. And what I want to do today is basically just begin this conversation with a, a big picture biblical overview of like what is the conversation, big picture of justice that's unfolding in the Bible. And then in the weeks ahead, we're going to get into some of the more details like the, the fairness topic and the punishment topic and some of these questions we hold. Um, but let's begin by just kind of surveying briefly. What is the Bible's conversation about justice unfolding? Um, If you read through the Old Testament, you're going to find that one of the most frequent words to be used to to describe the character of God is this pairing of terms, justice and righteousness. These almost always come up together. Isaiah 33, the Lord is exalted. He lives on high, filling Zion, that's Jerusalem, the capital, with justice and righteousness. Jeremiah 9 uh, the Lord proclaims, the learned should not boast of their knowledge, nor, no wo- nor warriors boast of their might, nor the rich boast of their wealth. No, those who boast should boast in this, that they understand and know me. I am the Lord who acts with kindness, justice, and righteousness in the world, and I delight in these things, declares the Lord." In the Psalms, your throne, God's throne, is built on righteousness and justice. Loyal love and faithfulness stand in front of you. These two words constantly travel as a pair in descriptions of God. And they come up as a pair not only in talking about God in the Old Testament, but also in talking about what does God want from human beings. Here's a couple of these references. Um, In Jeremiah 22, God is talking through a prophet to one of the kings, and God says, didn't your father eat and drink and still do what is just and right? Then it went well for him. He defended the rights of the poor and needy, and then it went well. Isn't that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Isn't justice and righteousness what it means to know me? 
Amos chapter 5, this, this famous kind of bold declaration Amos makes, let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. For the Old Testament, these two words somehow encapsulate both who God is and what God wants for and from humans. So, so why are these two words traveling as a pair? Like, why, why are there two words instead of just one? Um, well, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word justice, like what comes to mind to me is, is like primarily a, a social virtue, something we practice together. And when I hear righteousness, like what does it mean to be a righteous person? I sort of think of somebody who like prays a lot and maybe doesn't drink too much or doesn't cuss. Like justice to me sounds social and righteousness sounds like being like some kind of privately good virtuous person. Um, But righteousness in biblical terms is not that kind of private, isolated sort of goodness. Righteousness, just like justice in in Old Testament terms, is a relational term. It, It basically means someone who does right by other people. You are righteous if you do right by God and by the people around you. So so righteousness would include doing justice, but it's also bigger than justice. It means also practicing kindness, practicing compassion. You are holistically doing right by others. So what does it mean for God to practice justice and for God to practice righteousness, this kind of doing right by the world? What does that look like for God? Well, in the Old Testament, I would say there's kind of broadly three components of this. Um, number one, for God, just practicing justice, righteousness, is about making... Wow. <laughs> making good judgments. Um, Psalm chapter 9 says, the, the Lord rules forever. He assumes his throne for the sake of justice. He will establish justice in the world rightly. He will judge all people fairly. So basically, one one thing you could say about God being just is like somebody in the world has to actually be able to make objectively fair judgments. And it seems like everybody's got an investment, right? Like everybody's got a dog in the fight. But God is someone who is able to see clearly what's going on to make judgments that are fair to everyone with no bias, no favoritism, and no bribes. Right? There's nothing you can offer God to tip God in your direction. Um, this is one of the things we like praise God for and celebrate about God for. Right? There's somebody ruling the world who is actually able to make these judgments fairly. Um, second component in Isaiah 30. Nonetheless, the Lord is waiting to be merciful to you and will rise up to show you compassion. The Lord is a God of justice. Happy are those who wait for him. Now, notice in this verse what's kind of strange or unusual is that mercy and compassion are like linked right side by side with justice. I mean, in in biblical terms, what it means for God to be just is not to be eager to bring the hammer down and just like smash anyone who screws up. Um, Justice in biblical terms is an expression of God's compassion, Justice is an expression of God's like genuine mercy and care that everyone be treated well and be whole. Right? Justice and compassion are, are kind of inextricably linked in God. And third, and maybe most kind of prominently in the Old Testament, um, the justice of God has a particular concern for the fate of the poor and the vulnerable. Um, you see this all over the Old Testament, but just one example in Deuteronomy 10. 
The Lord your God is the God of all gods and Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes. He enacts justice for the orphans and the widows, and he loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. Now, this list right here, orphans, widows, immigrants, this is a list of people who are typically in this time and place the most impoverished, the most vulnerable, the people who are struggling to survive. In the Old Testament, uh, care for the vulnerable, care for the poor is an expression of justice, not just compassion. It's an expression of what people are actually due because all human beings in Old Testament terms are made in the image of God. Like, all human beings bear the imprint of God's likeness and therefore are owed some level of honor, some level of dignity, some level of care by virtue of having that stamp of God on them. Now, I remember um, when, back when I was um, spending some time working in Africa, I had a chance at one point to travel to a refugee camp in northern Uganda in an area called Gulu. Um, and this refugee camp had existed in this area for about 20 years after a lot of warfare and conflict. And they told us they were going to take us to the market of this refugee camp. And I don't know how many people were living in this camp, maybe a few thousand people. And they took us to the marketplace. And literally the entire marketplace was one woven basket I could fit in one palm. The market for the entire village was one basket of beans with a couple of roots on top. You know, the Old Testament looks at something like that and says, like, there is something fundamentally just outrageous about that. Like, something that rips at the heart of God. Because the people living in this camp, they are made in the image of God every bit as much as we are. And God made this world with enough for them to eat. Like, something has gone horribly, tragically, devastatingly wrong when thousands of people have one basket. Like, that is not how God has designed the world to function. That is not a reflection of the goodness and the compassion of God. So looking at all all of this together is like an Old Testament overview. You know, I I know a lot of you, a lot of people I talk to really struggle with the Old Testament and some of the darker parts of the Old Testament, but it's really worth stopping to, to recognize this picture I just painted for you of justice in the Old Testament was a revolution in religion. Like, like, nothing like this had ever kind of been on the map of human thinking in the past. There was a belief in the culture of the, the Middle East at the time that you owed justice to the king, right? Like, you, you owed certain behavior to the people who were above you, but nobody had ever thought there's something you owe to slaves. Like, there, there's something that is owed to someone simply by virtue of existing and being human. Like, that was a revolutionary thought, There was a belief in a lot of religions at the time that, you know, gods can demand things of you, like the god you worship can tell you, you should should behave fairly, you should be just. But nobody believed that the gods themselves had to have that same character, right? The gods can tell you what to do, but that doesn't mean the gods have to do it. But what we have here is a declaration, the god who asks justice of us is a just god, treats people that way himself. And maybe the, the most revolutionary part of all, and this, this is like really kind of a, a rocking thought in the history of religion, is that what God wants most is not ritual 
It's not religious performance. It's not sacrifice and offerings. What God wants most is just behavior toward other people. Now, Isaiah is kind of the, the great prophet of this message. Now, Isaiah opens his book by speaking for God. Stop bringing worthless offerings. Your incense repulses me. New moon, Sabbath, and the calling of an assembly, in other words, worship. I can't stand wickedness with celebration. When you extend your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even when you pray for a long time, I won't listen. Your hands are stained with blood. Wash, be clean. Remove your ugly deeds from my sight. Put an end to such evil. Learn to do good. What good? Well, Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. God says, if you want me to hear you, don't pray long, endless prayers, don't think you can like buy your way into this. Do the thing I actually asked you to do the way I said I wanted to be worshipped, which is through care for the orphan and the widow. In Isaiah 58, near the end of the book, Isaiah says, speaking for God, they ask me for righteous judgments, wanting to be close to God, to me. Why do we fast and you don't see? Why do we afflict ourselves and you don't notice? Yet on your fasting day, you do whatever you want and you oppress all your workers. You quarrel and brawl and then you fast. You hit each other violently with your fists. Isn't this the fast I choose? Releasing wicked restraints, untying the ropes of a yoke setting free the mistreated, and breaking every yoke. Isn't sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house? Covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family. According to the prophets, love for God is loving those God cares about. According to the prophets, God's love language is justice. This is how God receives love. Without this, without right relationship between human beings, all of that worship and all of that praying is just a bunch of noise. So this is the Old Testament vision. But but the question we have to ask of ourselves always as Jesus followers is not just what does the Old Testament say, but like what does Jesus say about it? Like, how does Jesus look into this vision and speak into it? What does he pick up? What does he change or transform or call us to see in a new way? And and what we're going to see over the next couple weeks as we look at Jesus and justice, Jesus both takes a lot of the Old Testament message and affirms it, and there are parts of the Old Testament message about justice that Jesus challenges quite strongly. We're going to get to some of those challenges. Those get kind of tricky. Um, But today I I want to start by just kind of noting what are some of the things we just saw in that big Old Testament picture that Jesus affirms, that that Jesus kind of takes from the Old Testament scripture and says, like, they got this right about God and about me. Um, A a couple of things Jesus affirms. Um, Number one, justice and righteousness as terms don't come up as often in the New Testament as, as in the Old. But it's very clear from the teaching of Jesus that Jesus is just as concerned as the Old Testament prophets were about how people relate to each other. Je- Jesus affirms that this question of how human beings care for each other and relate to each other is at the very heart of God's concern and the heart of what God is doing. 
Um, And the way Jesus does that primarily is that he goes around preaching this thing he calls the kingdom of God, which contrary to a lot of Christian history, Jesus was not teaching a kind of privatized spirituality. Like, how do I go in the room and shut the door and be righteous on my own? Jesus preaches a thing called a kingdom, which involves a new form of economics, a new way of using our money and resources together. It involves a new way of thinking about marriage. It involves a new pattern for dealing with wrongs in the community. Like when Jesus teaches the kingdom, he is teaching a way of human beings being together that's pleasing to God. Um, Second thing Jesus very clearly kind of affirms and picks up, um, Jesus famously at one point is asked, like, Jesus, what, what is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? Which commandment rises above the rest? And of course, many of you know what Jesus' answer was. He says, well, there's not one, there's two. Go ahead and throw that one up there. Jesus replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your being and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Jesus is just like straight up agreeing with the prophets on the core of their message here, right? Like there's two things. There's loving God and there's loving your neighbor and those two things are one thing. You can't talk about them as if they can be separated in any significant way. And this actually comes up at one point in Jesus' ministry as a point of conflict between him and other religious leaders. Um, Jesus turns to the Pharisees who are some of the other religious teachers of the day and, and he says, how terrible for you Pharisees. You give a tenth of your mint, your rue, your garden herbs of all kinds, like you're really good about your tithing, but you neglect justice and love for God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus isn't saying either or here. He's he's not saying like you shouldn't have cared about, about making offerings to God, but he says like you shouldn't have neglected justice and love for God in the process of doing these other things. Because just as the prophet said, right, like the offerings you're making, the sacrifices you're making aren't meaningful if you're not speaking God's love language, which is right relationship with other people, which is justice. A third really big, huge thing that Jesus agrees with the kind of Old Testament prophets on is that God has a particular concern for the poor and the vulnerable, And it's almost hard to like pick out one spot in the teachings of Jesus to speak to this because it's literally all over the ministry of Jesus. When he starts his ministry, he gets up and he says, quoting Isaiah, the, the justice prophet, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus wants to talk about what he's come to do, he picks up one of the most famous passages of one of the most vocal prophets speaking to God's heart for the poor and the oppressed. Um, In Mark chapter 8, at one point Jesus has been teaching all day and Jesus looks out over the crowd. Did this slide get cut out, Ryan? Um, in Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus is speaking about the crowd and he looks around and he says to his disciples basically like, look at these people around you. Um, they're hungry and I'm concerned about them. They're hungry and I'm concerned about them. You feed them. 
Right? I love the wording in Mark because Jesus explicitly is saying this is an expression of, of his concern for the state of the bodies of the people who've come to listen to his teachings. In Luke chapter 6, um, Jesus has uh, yet another conversation about the way that kind of religion is being practiced in his day. And in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus gives one of his little um, kind of barn burner sayings. He says, How terrible it is for you who are rich because you have already received your comfort. How terrible it will be for you who have plenty now because you will be hungry. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not opposed to people having a meal. Like, the, the, the statement is not about Jesus being anti-food. It, it is about the scenario I painted to you in Gulu of the, like, village eating out of one basket, right? The problem is not that you have a meal. The problem is that you're feasting Well, the people over here have nothing, right? Jesus says that that's going to mean something in terms of the big picture of the kingdom of God. Um, and finally, in Matthew 25... Jesus tells this, this great story about, like, what is the future going to be like? And he says, those who are righteous will reply to him, the king who is God, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will reply to them, I assure you that what you have done for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done for me. Notice two things here. Um, Number one, Jesus explicitly just said, this is what God will say to the righteous. Righteousness here is being defined as something that is unfolding within this relationship with the poor. Um, The second thing is that Jesus is saying God is so deeply identified with these people who are struggling that what is done to them or what is offered to them is done or offered to God. That's like taking what the prophet said and making it like even more radical and extreme. Literally what you do for this person, you are doing for me, God says. But what's really, I think, amazing about the teachings of Jesus, like all of these parts of Jesus' teachings are very much in line with what the prophets taught in the Old Testament. But Jesus goes way farther than the prophets ever went in some of his teachings. Um, Luke chapter 6, we actually read this in our passage last week, and I, I don't know if this like rang a bell for you, but this is a radical teaching. Jesus says to his followers, give to everyone who asks and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Give to everyone who asks? Like, what kind of a crazy teaching is that? Like, that teaching there, that goes way beyond the demands of justice. Like, there's no principle of justice that gets you to this. This is about a kind of open-handed generosity that just goes beyond anything that, like, normal conceptions of justice can take in. Um, Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a a story to people who are having a meal. And he says to, Jesus said to the person who invited him, when you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they'll invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when 
the just, notice justice here, are resurrected. Again, this is a radical teaching that goes way beyond the normal definition of justice. It's about a kind of generosity toward others, about a self-sacrificial way of conceiving of how you're constructing your entire life, in which what you're thinking about at any given moment is not what advantages me, what is good for me, but what advantages other people, particularly those who are starting from the bottom. Like, what is to their advantage? I think if you look at the ministry of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus as a whole, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he he tells people to take up their cross and follow him. The cross is a place you go when you are willing to advantage other people even at your own expense. Sometimes I wonder if the New Testament doesn't use the word justice all that often because justice, as humans understand it, is just too small of a word for this kind of vision Jesus is giving of radical generosity and radical self-emptying for the sake of other people. Like, that, that's, that's so much bigger than any kind of, like, justice-fairness definition we come up with that we can only say this is what it means to be like Jesus. This is what the love of God is like. And uh, we know that Jesus' disciples like heard this teaching because you see the early church in the New Testament struggling to pick up this vision and figure out how to live it. You know, they're starting to like share their possessions with each other. They're asking themselves, like, how do we live out in this new order of human relationships? One of my favorite articulations of it, of what they've heard from Jesus, comes from Jesus' own brother, James. Um, Jesus' younger brother, James, writes... True devotion or true religion, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father, is this. To care for orphans and widows in their difficulties and to keep the world from contaminating us. Now, I love this articulation because James says it's not about a contrast between, like, if you do the outward stuff, the inward stuff doesn't matter. Like, that's not what the message of Jesus is. Jesus was very concerned with the inward stuff, too, because the inward and the outward are intertwined. And if you want to know that that's true, I think just, like, look at the behavior of Americans in the last year. The more kind of news you take in that makes you feel threatened and afraid, the harder it is to practice generosity toward anybody else. The more advertisements you're reading that are stirring up your desire and longing for more stuff, the harder it is to practice just relationships with other people. The stuff that you take in from the world has an outcome in terms of how you relate to other people. This is why righteousness is both relational and it's personal. It's inward and it's outward. Like all of that stuff works together. Um, we, we We don't worry about being contaminated because we're prudes. We worry about what we're taking in because we realize it impacts what comes out in our relationships. So in the midst of this kind of cultural moment where we as an American culture are having this debate on justice and what we owe, I think it's worth just kind of stepping back today to to ask, like, where is our starting point as Christians? Where do we begin to ask that question, what we owe to others? Biblically speaking, it starts here, at least, at the very least, what we owe other people is honor as those who are also made in the image of God and who are valued by God. 
At the very least, that's what we owe every other person, is an acknowledgement they too bear the image of God. Um, But the other place, the other starting point for us as followers of Jesus is to realize we serve one who goes radically beyond any normal conceivable notion of justice, who asks us to practice radical open-handed generosity with others who says, don't just treat the poor with charity, treat them like brothers and sisters, like family. Someone who says to us, take up your cross and follow me in the way of the cross, seeking the good and the advantage of other people even above your own. No law will ever be able to demand that. This goes beyond law. This is what it means to be people who are walking in the path and the way of Jesus and being transformed into his spirit. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for casting a vision for us that is so big. And not just for talking it, because there are a lot of people in the world who can talk big ideas, but for living it. Every single moment of your life was lived for the advantage of others. Show us what it means to follow you in some small step this week. To open our hands in generosity. To care for those you care for. To acknowledge your image where it's being ignored. to go beyond even our notions of justice, to practice a kind of deep love, deep generosity, and deep care for others that is reflective of your heart for this world and for us. Lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.